DiscerningHearts.com and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology presents The Gospel of Divine Mercy, recorded at the 2016 Fullness of Truth Conference, located at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Houston, Texas. President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, Dr. Scott Hahn, and St. Paul Center Fellows, Dr. John Berksman and Dr. Michael Barber, in a series of six conference talks, explored various questions surrounding the mystery of mercy. What is mercy? Is it an emotion, an action, an affront to justice, or an expression of justice? Moreover, what does it look like in action? Where do we find it described in sacred scripture? What do we need to do to receive it? And how do we share God's mercy as we go about our lives in the world today? During the course of the six conference talks, they explore these questions and more, attempting to plumb the depths of the all-important manifestation of God's healing, forgiving, transforming, faithful love with the help of sacred scripture. We now begin conference talk five, featuring Dr. Michael Barber, presenting Grace as Divine Mercy in St. Paul. I want to focus here on St. Paul's teaching. And I think for a lot of Catholics, St. Paul is seen as sort of an away game. You know what I mean? I'm I'm a baseball fan, so I, I can't help but use some baseball analogies here. It's always nice when your team plays at their home stadium, lots of familiar surroundings. But I think there's a perception among many Christians that Paul was really, let's be honest, a Protestant. <laughs> and so I really wanted to make sure that in a conference devoted to divine mercy, we had a talk that really focused on Catholic understanding of mercy as it's found in, in St. Paul. And I know, of course, that Dr. Hahn and, and Dr. Bergsman will do something as well on St. Paul, but in particular, I've been excited to work in the Pauline epistles lately, and in particular, this question of salvation. I want to tell you about a book I was a part of a few, in a moment, but before we get underway, why don't we start with a brief prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you give us a calling. You have bestowed on us a gift that we are unworthy of. And that calling is not simply just to be Catholic. That calling is not simply to be righteous. That calling is to be nothing less than to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. As St. Paul says in Romans 8. And so we come to recognize that salvation for us as Catholics is really nothing less than ultimately growing up as sons in the Son. Help us to understand what a tremendous gift you have bestowed upon us. That we are not merely your creatures, that we're not simply your servants, but that we are invited into your family, into the family of God, and that we are united to the one who, for all eternity, is the image of the Father as Son. Help us, Lord, to respond to the gift of grace that you've bestowed upon us, which empowers us and enables us to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. And we ask all the angels and saints in heaven to pray for us, in particular, we turn to the one who is full of grace and ask for her prayers. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's almost impossible to overstate Paul's importance in the history of Christianity and to our Catholic faith. Thirteen of the 27 books in the New Testament are attributed to him. Some of the early church fathers also thought 
that Hebrews was written by Paul, and there's, I think, some good reasons for thinking that. Um, St. Paul is more responsible than almost anyone else in the history of Christianity for the spread of the faith throughout the world. And so it's no surprise, very early on, his brilliance, his importance was recognized. In 2 Peter, we read the, a letter of Peter where uh, Peter says, Count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Quite a bit stands out here. First, we see that Peter, in 2 Peter, recognizes the wisdom that's given to St. Paul. But he also acknowledges that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. So if you've ever sat down and tried to read Galatians or Colossians and found yourself scratching your head saying, I'm not really sure what he means here. Don't worry, you're in Petrine company. (laughs) St. Peter himself admitted there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. But he also says that the ignorant and unstable twist the meaning of Paul's words. It's a good thing we don't have that problem today, huh? And finally, he says they do this to the other scriptures, which is rather remarkable. Here, Paul's letters are being put on par with scripture. Amazing statement. And of course, St. Paul didn't just teach by his letters. He taught by his own life. He acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I think an argument could be made that there are a few people in Christian history who have been more Christ-like than St. Paul. St. Paul is the one who was that great student of the rabbis, that great scholar of the first century, who he he tells us he advanced in Judaism beyond beyond those uh, of his peers. He tells us that he was brought up at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish rabbi in history. Paul had studied under him, it seems, in some way, from his own language. And so it was St. Paul who begins to help flush out the implications of Jesus' teachings. And he begins to give us reflections on things like grace and the church and the sacraments. And there are lots of different areas of St. Paul's writings that we could talk about, but I'd like to focus here on the question of grace. This talk is called Grace as Divine Mercy in St. Paul's Teaching. Now, to a lot of our non-Catholic Christian friends, it may be somewhat of a surprise that a Catholic would talk about the importance of grace in St. Paul. In many circles, there are sort of mischaracterizations of Catholic teaching where it's said that grace isn't really all that significant. You're not saved by grace, according to the Catholics. You're saved by... Oh, everybody's heard this before. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. And I've had a lot of fun in the last few years... um, devoting some of my time and energy to explaining the Catholic understanding of grace, especially in St. Paul. So a few years ago, I got an email from a very well-known Protestant publisher, Zondervan. And a theologian who had written books for Zondervan reached out to me and uh, said that they were working on a book called The Role of Works at the Final Judgment, And they were going to have four views. And they wanted to have a Catholic contributor. 
So I understood what I was up against. It was going to be three Protestants <laughs> writing different perspectives and then the token Catholic. But actually, they didn't want a token Catholic. They really wanted a robust presentation of Catholic theology. Now, this was so exciting for me, I've got to confess, because I've spent much of my life learning and studying at non-Catholic institutions like Azusa Pacific University, Fuller Theological Seminary, where I attended these Protestant institutions as a Catholic. All right? Now, just for those of you who are concerned, I did get the, the, the imprimatur, the Catholic imprimatur on my curriculum vitae. I went to Franciscan University, right? so it's right there. So if you're worried. But when I went to these schools, although I learned so much from my Protestant professors and non-Catholic Christian friends, oftentimes I would find this kind of straw man presentation of Catholic teaching. So it was really a neat opportunity to be invited to write in a book published by a major Protestant publisher, The Catholic View. And so we ended up doing this book. It came out, four views on the role of works at the final judgment. And uh, it was a lot of fun to begin my article with a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and what I'd like to do in this talk is present some of that debate that unfolded in this book. And, uh, and then I'll tell you a little bit about some things that happened after the book was published that I think are interesting and sort of exciting. And again, it keeps coming back to this issue of grace. What is grace? At the end of the day, the question of salvation really is a question of grace. Non-Catholics will say they have cornered the market on this, and then, okay, we affirm that salvation is by grace, and I'll say, and the Catholics think that you're saved by works. So let me kind of lay this out here, and ultimately I like to explain how grace is really the most profound gift of divine mercy imaginable in St. Paul because of what it does for us. So let me lay out first a kind of standard Protestant approach. Now, when I say a Protestant approach, I recognize that there are many different Protestant churches, and I can't possibly be expected to relate in nuance all the different views that various groups have. But this is a pretty standard Protestant approach to the question of salvation. Are you saved? Have you been asked that question? Are you saved? Right? What does that mean? Well, in many Protestant traditions, I would say most, it goes back to this idea that Martin Luther launched the idea of salvation by faith alone, in Latin, sola fide. And our non-Catholic Christian friends will point out passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Or Romans 3.28. We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Or finally, Romans 10.10. For man believes with his heart and so is justified. Just had that in Romans 3.28. And he confesses with his lips and so is saved. What do you need to be saved? Grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, St. Paul says. It's a gift. And so non-Catholics will insist that if you make anything of works, at least if you say that works are somehow necessary for salvation, you're contradicting Paul's teaching. Because Paul says you're not saved by your own doing. You're saved by grace here in Ephesians 2.9. And then they'll look at some of these other passages that talk about justification. What exactly is justification? Well, it is a kind of a complicated word to describe in English because when we hear the term justification, I think we often have an understanding that's not really related to the biblical terminology. Justification, you know, you need an excuse for doing something. I think that's the term most people hear when they, when they run into this word justification. In the New Testament, it's used, in the English New Testament, it's often used to translate the Greek term dikaiao, 
which is from the word righteousness in Greek, dikaiosune. And there's no mistake about it, justification in many contexts has a legal dimension to it, a forensic dimension to it, a juridical, you know. It's a term that comes out of a courtroom. Even St. Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, for example. He says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, dikaio. Right? Same word that's translated elsewhere, justified. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted, justified. So St. Paul here is using that language of judgment in context. I don't pronounce the judgment before the proper time. God is my judge. And so the traditional Protestant view is that justification relates to this idea of being acquitted. And I think actually that makes a lot of sense, right? That's, there certainly is that meaning here in the New Testament. Dikaiao certainly has a legal dimension to it. But where non-Catholic Christians will go with this is somewhere very different than Catholics will go. Non-Catholics will say, so what God does is that he declares the juridical ruling, you are justified, he pronounces us in a sense acquitted, but we are not actually righteous. It's a kind of legal fiction. So Tom Schreiner, who's one of my uh, interlocutors in this book, says, judges, quote, do not make a person righteous, but pronounce what is in fact the case. And he goes on to say, God's verdict violates the normal and just procedure for a judge. Judges who declare the guilty to be righteous violate the standards of justice. So what Tom Schreiner says is God does something that no judge could really do. He pronounces us just. He pronounces us justified, even though we're not. Without making us righteous. And many non-Catholic Christians have the idea that once you receive this declaration of justi justification by faith, so we believe in God, we don't have to do anything. We believe in God, we trust in him, None of our works count. We just have trust in him, and then we receive this gift of justification. And once you receive that, you can never lose it, many will say. It's called eternal security. And non-Catholic Christians will often turn to Romans 8, where Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul says, nothing can ever separate us from Christ. Now, the one thing I would point out is that nowhere here does Paul ever include in that list sin. Right? He doesn't say, no sin can separate us from Christ. He says, none of the sufferings that we endure. But I don't think sin is on the list. Anyway, we'll get back to that later. So given this understanding, and admittedly this is truncated, and there's a lot more that could be said here. Non-Catholic Christians will raise the following problems with Catholic views of salvation. Number one, Catholics think work, good works are redemptive. Redemptive suffering. <gasps> Only Jesus' suffering is redemptive. But you think you can add to Jesus' work? What Wasn't his work enough? Number two, Catholics don't give God full credit for salvation. Salvation is by faith, not by your works. What, you think that you should get some credit for your salvation? You think it's based on something you do? No, no, no. It's only what God does. Number three, they'll say, 
Catholics misunderstand justification. Because as we'll see, Catholics believe that when you're justified, you're actually made righteous. Non-Catholics will say, no, justification is just a legal decree. It doesn't mean that you're actually made righteous. And then finally, number four, Catholics believe that you can lose your salvation. But Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All right? So, how would we respond to these things? Well, let's begin this way. First, let's emphasize that while it is true that the New Testament is very clear that grace is what saves us, and Paul is abundantly clear that we are saved not by what we do, but by God's grace, right? We'll talk about that in a second. In other passages, Paul also insists that, in fact, works are necessary for justification and for salvation. Let me give you a couple. Romans 2. Paul says, For God will render to every man according to his... What? According to his works. He says, The doers of the law will be justified. Now, there are some Protestant scholars, one in particular that I'm thinking of, who is so uncomfortable with this, he insists that when Paul wrote this chapter, he wasn't explaining what he actually believed. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There is a, there is a, a, a well-respected scholar who takes a, a, a position I think very few people have embraced, where he says, well, the first few chapters of Romans, Paul is actually speaking in another character's voice. He doesn't, he doesn't mean that. Don't pay any attention to that man behind the curtain over there. <laughs> so he insists, well, you know, in Romans, Paul is speaking in a different voice. The problem with that is he doesn't think that that's true of other letters of Paul. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says something rather similar. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to faith alone. No, that's not what Paul says according to what he has done in the body. So what you've done is the basis for what you'll receive at the time of judgment. We can look at many, many other passages, but these are just two passages in Paul that make it clear that good works are actually necessary in some way, and it's very problematic to try to explain them away or just wave your hand and say, oh, those don't count. That's not really, I think, faithfully listening to St. Paul's teaching. So what does St. Paul say? Well, that one passage I mentioned earlier actually makes very clear. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that grace is a gift of mercy. And he goes on to say this. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. And the Greek word there for grace is charis. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So notice that for St. Paul, salvation is a lot more than just getting out of hell. I think this is really important to emphasize. I think when a lot of people hear that question, are you saved? What they're actually getting at is, do you have supernatural fire insurance? <laughs> are you going to stay out of hell? I think that... the. The, behind that question is a sort of reductivist, a kind of simplistic view of salvation, that salvation is just getting out of hell. From a Catholic perspective, salvation is a lot more than that. And for St. Paul, it's a lot more than that. Here he makes it clear that grace makes us alive with Christ and that it makes us sit in the heavenly places with him. We are already, in a sense, in heaven. He goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul makes it clear here that when you're first saved, that initial gift, when you're dead and you're made alive, that initial gift of salvation, it's not based on anything that you do. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you. To make God save you. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love you. God already loves you, right? God already loves us with incomprehensible love. It's not like God is up in heaven with arms folded, looking down at each one of us saying, I'm not impressed. (laughs) Do something to impress me. Right? Unfortunately, I do think a lot of Christians and even Catholics have that misunderstanding of who God is. God is a kind of authoritarian father figure. Not long ago, I had a student who was really struggling at JP Catholic, and uh, she came into my office, and we got talking about some of the struggles that she's had in her life. And we were talking for a while, and she said, you know, I think I just have a problem with God. And I said, well, why do you have a problem with God? And and she said, well, I don't have a problem with him as much as he has a problem with me. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't think God's too happy with me right now. God doesn't like me very much. I was knocked out of my chair when she said that. That she would really imagine that God was up in heaven with arms folded saying, I've had enough of you. And yet I do think that there are people who have that view of God. And so I proceeded to explain to her that in God's eyes, she was lovable, not because of anything that she does, not because of anything that she could impress God with, that God made her, that God created her in his image and likeness before she could merit even that before she could even merit the gift of creation. I I explained to her that God loves her more than she could ever want him to love her. And that God wasn't upset or angry or closed off to her. Explain God is always reaching out to you with arms outstretched. I said, he's literally dying for you to love him. He died on the cross to win you back. She erupted in tears. We had a long conversation. She she hasn't been the first, and she won't be the last, I'm sure. And I've had that conversation with someone about. God saves us not because of our own doing, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but that's especially true in baptism. Right? The Catholic practice of infant baptism underscores that, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, there's one very interesting scholar writing these days who I've been paying close attention to. His name's John Barclay. And uh, he's been writing quite a bit on this idea of gift in the ancient world. And he explains that, among other things, what is especially remarkable about Paul's teaching about grace, about charis. Charis is the word for gift in Greek. Is that in the ancient world, people were rather strategic in gift giving. People in society would give a gift to another person, right, who they thought they could develop a relationship with by giving that gift. And so people who were noble, people who were important to get to know, or even if you just wanted to look like you were sort of a magnanimous person, oftentimes people would give gifts to people that they wanted to befriend. And Barclay points out that one of the shocking things about Paul's teaching is that Paul explains that Jesus gives his grace to everybody. He gives his gift to everyone. The rich and the poor, Israel and Gentiles, Paul's teaching on grace is scandalous 
in a Greco-Roman context because he's giving grace to everyone. Even more, Barclay points out, it was understood in the ancient world when you receive a gift that it's important to respond to that gift. You don't just say, oh, wow, thank you for this nice gift. I'm going to pocket that and go my merry way. Once you receive a gift out of gratitude, you want to reciprocate. And so, Barclay writes, none of Paul's hearers would thus be the least surprised that God's supreme gift in Christ, the care is spoken of, even if it was given without regard to worth, given indeed to the utterly sinful and ungodly, carried with it expectations and obligations which resulted from the gift. It was, if you like, unconditioned, based on no prior conditions, he explains. But not unconditional. It didn't... It's not true that that gift wouldn't have carried subsequent demands. And so scholars like Barclay and others, even Protestant scholars, Barclay is a Protestant scholar, have been pointing out that what Paul is talking about with grace is a gift that's given to us that is meant to empower us to do things that we otherwise would be incapable of accomplishing. So, can you save yourself by a good work? Well, no, you can't do anything that is meritorious and counts for your salvation. That's impossible. You're a sinful human being. But, nothing is impossible with God. And so the Catholic understanding of grace, which I think flows from St. Paul, is that God is so powerful that he is able to give us grace to empower us to do things that we on our own could never accomplish without him. St. Paul makes this very clear. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He sounds like Popeye, doesn't he? I am. That's all. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Paul explains, Barclay points this out, others point this out, Protestant scholars, that what Paul is saying is that because he's been given grace, he's able to work harder. Because he's been, able, because he's been given grace, now his work is in a way transformed. Paul says something similar in Romans 15. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Why was God giving them this grace? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. So God's grace empowers him to have a fruitful ministry. In Christ Jesus then, Paul says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed. Paul says, I'm proud of my work, but it's really not that I can say this is just simply speaking something I've done on my own. What I've accomplished is ultimately the work of God. Non-Catholic Christians often balk at the Catholic understanding of salvation, and an extension of that is our understanding of the saints, and in particular, understanding of Mary. A lot of non-Catholic Christians look at Mary, look at the Catholic understanding of Mary, and they're very uncomfortable. They think, wow, you give a lot of credit to Mary. They say, wow, don't you think maybe you're distracting from Jesus by paying so much attention on Mary? Pay, paying so much attention to Mary? Don't you think that that's misplaced? Shouldn't Christ be more central? I think part of the problem, part of the reaction to Catholic understanding of Mary is a sort of discomfort with the idea that God could make someone that holy? As Catholics, we believe Mary is full of... Why is Mary special? It's only because of God's grace. Amen? Amen. That is what makes her special. 
And so the more we talk about Mary, we're really talking about the work of Christ, right? Not long ago, we had an art exhibit at John Paul the Great Catholic University. It was a great artist named Maria Rangel. She paints these lifelike paintings. It's spectacular. And we had this exhibit, and I remember going to the exhibit, and it was the special Maria Rangel day. Imagine what would happen, though, if I walked into the exhibit, Marie Rangel was standing there, and I said, congratulations, Marie. We're so glad to be here. We're here for you. And we just stood there and stared at her. Might get a little uncomfortable. She might say, well, you know, maybe you should walk around and look at some of my art. Oh, no, Maria. I I wouldn't want to distract from you. I wouldn't want to be distracted from you. This is about you today. (laughs) I don't want to get sidelined with all these things on the wall. It's about you. We're here for you. She'd probably end up saying something like, well, if you really want to appreciate me, then look at my art. Amen? If you want to appreciate God, look at his art. And so when we honor Mary, we're not distracting people from Christ. We're saying Christ is so powerful and his grace is so real, he's able to make someone this holy. And so in this book, I was making that case that for Catholics, our work is really meritorious, yes, but only because once we have been united to Christ, our work is then transformed. And this is not my idea. I think this is St. Paul's idea, Philippians 2. St. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for for his good pleasure. God is working within us. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God wants to work in us? You see, if we think of our apostolates, if we think of the work we do for the church, if we think of our good deeds as something that we take sole credit for, then you know what ends up happening? We become idolaters. You know what an idolater is? They worship the work of their hands. And when we start thinking of our accomplishments as something that we're really ultimately fully responsible for and can take credit for, we miss the point of grace working in our lives. It becomes a real danger. And this can be fundamental just in prayer. I don't know about you, I frequently, when I go to pray, I sit down and I think, okay, I'm going to shut out all distractions. I'm going to enter into this time of prayer. And I try to wrap my mind around what I'm going to do and remember all the things that I've learned about prayer over my lifetime and enter into that spirit of prayer. And oftentimes I forget to do the very... The very simple thing that Francis de Sales talks about doing over and over again in his classic work, Introduction to the Devout Life. Start by asking God, please help me to have a fruitful time of prayer. Sometimes we go to prayer and we think, this is something that I'm going to make happen. I'm going to make this a good prayer. I'm going to make this a good prayer time. I'm going to have me some good prayer right now. I'm manufacturing this experience of prayer. Like if I go through the right steps, if I follow the right technique, if I, whatever. At JP Catholic, we have a little uh, Blessed Sacrament Chapel, and I notice that a lot of times when I go into the chapel, the students have set the lights like really low, and there's like this mood lighting in the chapel. Maybe that helps, I don't know, but it seems a little silly to think that the right mood lighting is what... uh, you know, like you're taking your wife out to dinner or something. Yeah, you got to get it. <laughs> All right, God, wait. I can't really talk to you yet. I, I need you to have the right mood, and then you can start talking to me. I don't get that. But the thing that we need to remember is, if those things are helpful, then absolutely do those things. But first and foremost, recognize that if you're going to have a good prayer experience, it's not going to be because you manufactured it. We need to ask God to work in our lives and recognize that anything that we do that is good is ultimately him working within us. And not only does he work within us, he does far more than we could ever imagine we could do. St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do we really believe that he can do far more abundantly than we ever ask or think? Do we really believe that grace is capable of that? Or do we think that it's going to be the result of our own work? There's one real easy way to diagnose ourselves and our attitude. If you can go through a whole day and not spend any substantial time in prayer, if you can go through a whole day and not set aside any real significant time for prayer, you know what you told God that day? I got it. I didn't need you. I was on top of it. Thanks. If we can go through a whole day without spending 15 minutes talking to God, then we've approached our whole day with the wrong mindset. Because we imagine that it's all on our shoulders. And one thing that I've found is that the more I devote my time to prayer, the more effective I am. And I can tell you, the, the talks and the classes that I give after prayer time, it's quite different than the ones I do when I haven't had significant prayer to help me. Uh, today's class bombed. I know exactly why. I thought I had to do a little bit more research before class. Instead, I should have been in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel. Right? Thomas Aquinas famously was known for spending more time in prayer when he faced a theological difficulty. Instead of devoting more time to scholarship and research, Thomas would spend more time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. In fact, it's, it's said that Thomas would kneel down before the tabernacle in their little chapel, and he would put his head against the tabernacle. God, this is so easy for you, you know? <laughs> Grace is this gift that empowers us, but the gift isn't just some external thing to Christ. It's Christ himself. God is at work within you, Paul says in Philippians. and Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the gift of grace is ultimately the gift of Christ. And so I like to point out to my Protestant friends in the book, is there something Christ can't do? If Christ is within us, then we should be able to do good works that aren't even salvific. And it was kind of amazing the author of the book, uh, I'm sorry, the editor of the book, at the end, he summarized all the different views. And he kind of came up with a kind of catchy slogan for each one. One he called the black and white view. Another view he said the coherent blend. When he summarized the Catholic view, he said it's, quote unquote, a more sophisticated approach. <laughs> black and white, right there on the page. It's the last one he talked about. And then he said this. If there's any weakness, any error here, it is, according to Barber, that the Catholic version gives God too much credit and attributes to Christ too much grace. Now, I, I, I didn't do anything in this book that other theologians could do far more effectively than I could. Scott Hahn, John Bergsma, Brant Petrie, I just quoted the catechism. That's how I started. I quoted the catechism of the Catholic Church. And this is the Catholic understanding, right? The Catholic understanding is that God's grace is so powerful that he can transform us so that not only are we not sinners, that's mercy, right? Mercy is getting us out of hell. Okay, that's, that's mercy. We don't deserve that. But God's gift is even more merciful. Because God's gift isn't just getting us out of hell. God is going to now transform us and make us like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when does that happen? For Catholics, that happens at baptism. And I would submit, for Paul, that happens at baptism. Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, let's think about this. When would you be washed? As many recognize, as even Protestant scholars recognize, there's a baptismal reference. St. Paul says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, The law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified? It says, by now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through, ba- through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice how he links here. Justification, sonship, and being united to Christ, putting on Christ. It's all one piece. And so in the Catholic view, justification isn't just a legal decree. Justification is more than just an acquittal. Dikaiao in the Greek, it actually, it, it can mean to make righteous. And Catholics say, you know what it means? It means to make righteous. Why? Because who is the judge? The judge, Schreiner is right about one thing. He's no ordinary judge. Schreiner says, God violates what most judges do. He declares us just even though we're not. I say, no, God doesn't violate justice. God says, you are, at baptism, God says, you are justified. And you know what happens? You're made righteous. In baptism. You're given the gift of righteousness. Why? Blessed John Henry Newman explained When God created the cosmos, what happened? He said, let there be light. And it was just a legal fiction. Just a legal decree. No, no. When God declared, let there be light, what happened? There was light. God does what he says. And so when God says, you are justified, you are made just, we are. And so, as Paul says, the goal is, of salvation is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so justification is nothing less than the gift of sonship. The gift of that righteousness. Paul says Christ is our righteousness. We're given Christ at baptism. But here's the thing about sonship. When you're a son, you know what you do? You gotta grow up. Sons have to grow up. Now remember what I said earlier. For non-Catholic Christians, when they say are you saved, they think of it as a moment, right? You get out of hell. I got saved on Tuesday, March 3rd, 1974. In the back of a quickie mart, Pastor Bob in his pickup truck. You've heard that before, right? That kind of perspective? All right, well, for Catholics, salvation isn't about just a moment, And you know what? For Paul, salvation isn't just a moment. It's a process because sonship means growing up. So Paul says, in this hope we were saved. Salvation is something that happens in the past. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he talks about those of us who are being saved. It's a present reality. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about the man who himself will be saved. Salvation is in the past, in the present, and in the future. Sonship means growing up. And so, yes, sonship is a moment, but guess what? You can also reject that gift of sonship. And Paul even says that. Paul even is aware of that. You know, my friends who believe in eternal security often overlook a really interesting passage in 1 Corinthians. I don't think if Paul believed in eternal security, he would write these words. You tell me. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Paul also says in Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The language here is somewhat similar to what we find in John 15. Jesus talks about being the vine, we're the branches. And he talks about how if we're not bearing fruit, we can be cut off. We can at one time be united to Christ and then be separated from him. Now, all of this is important 
because it means growing up and becoming like a son. And I think the biggest challenge we face in that is fully growing into maturity and becoming fully like Christ. And what does Christ do ultimately at the end of his life? He dies. He suffers. He lays himself, he lays his life down for us. He embraces the cross. And that is where sons can stop growing. That is where sons often turn away. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus in good weather, when everything is going swimmingly. But when you're faced with serious temptation, when you're faced with difficult choices, and when you're especially called on to be persecuted, oftentimes we lose heart. And yet for Catholics, suffering is so important. Because for us as Catholics, suffering is a part of that growing into the sonship of Christ. Because it is when we embrace suffering united to Christ, that now he's fully alive in us because now he's offering himself in us. So St. Paul says in Ephesians 3, something that's rather surprising. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What? Paul says that his suffering is the Ephesians' glory. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. What I'm suffering is your glory. Many scholars have been puzzled by this. Uh, Chris Karagunis, one scholar, says, the meaning of glory has puzzled all interpreters. How can suffering be a glory? What are you talking about, Paul? But Paul understands that the way we are fully maturing in Christ is that we are united to him, and so now even our suffering is transformed. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. You receive comfort when you suffer. What, what kind of backwards world are you living in, Paul? When I experience suffering, I experience suffering. I'm not like, oh, I'm suffering. I feel so much better now. <laughs> Paul says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Why do we have comfort? Because we recognize we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And so in Catholic tradition, we'll say something like, offer it up. Now, that can be said in a rather heartless way. <laughs> and we have to avoid that. But we should recognize the power in those words. God's grace is so powerful that he can turn our works and our sufferings into a gift, which ultimately is our glory because it's in our suffering that we're being most conformed to Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen? This is why in Catholic churches, we have a cross with a body on it. We have the corpus on a cross. We want to remain cognizant of the fact that our sufferings are taken up in Christ's sufferings and really vice versa. Christ takes up our sufferings into his. So that our suffering means something. So in many non-Catholic circles, there's understanding that at the end times, there'll be something called the rapture. You've heard of the rapture? Right. I've always wanted to uh, sort of tease some of my non-Catholic friends, kind of lay out all of my clothes. <laughs> what happened to them? When I was at APU or whatever, you know. Sometimes when I was at APU, it'd be, it would be, it was always great. I mean, I had a lot of great friends there. But there were some trying experiences. I remember one time in particular, there's only one professor I ever had who was really anti-Catholic. And he would go after me in class. And one time I was really sort of, sort of bitter and uh, not all that happy that day. And I had to go to chapel because all students were required to go to chapel. And I was 
regretting, maybe I shouldn't be at a Protestant school, and you know, man, this isn't that fun, you know. And I was sitting there before chapel, and somebody came up to my row and said, excuse me, is that seat saved? I said, I don't know, and I looked at the chair and I said, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? away with a funny look on his face. <laughs> For us, salvation is all about mercy. Justification is about mercy. It's not just about getting out of hell, though. It's not just a moment where you're saved. It's about a lifetime of growing into that sonship and enabling all of our works to be given over to Christ and empowered by his grace because Christ is truly living within us. I want to close with a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism says, Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. Yes, in baptism we're justified, and it's not by anything that we do, right? Nothing that my baby does, any of my babies have done, merits baptism. In fact, you, a baby can't even ask for baptism, right? The parents bring the baby for baptism. That really points out that as Catholics we believe nothing you do counts for your salvation. Somebody else has to bring you. You can't baptize yourself. Even in the Catholic Church, right? Somebody else baptizes you. You can't do it for yourself. But once you're baptized, what happens? Then you're united to Christ, and now your works are no longer just your works. They're Christ's works in you. So it conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ. Right? Yes, our good works are for his glory. The saints' good works are for his glory. When we look at what Mother Teresa has done, when we look at what John Paul II did, we see Christ. And we say, God is able to perform that miracle, the life of John Paul II. Amen? It, is for, it, it has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. And it says this, it is the most excellent work of God's mercy. That is mercy. That God would look down at the very creatures who spit in his face in the Garden of Eden and not only say, I forgive you. You don't have to go to hell. No. God comes to these creatures and says, all right, I'm going to give you my son. He will die for you so that you will be empowered to become like my son. That is mercy. Lord, have mercy. That's what mercy means. Lord, have mercy. Not just forgive me, empower me, strengthen me, help me to become a son in the sun. Help me to suffer for you. Let us turn now to our Lord and ask him for the grace to live out the vocation that he has called us to pursue. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we know that you give us your power to be transformed, to become like you. And yet so often, we have a minimalistic understanding of what it means to be Catholic. We think in reductivist terms, simply avoiding mortal sin, because we just want to get out of hell. Help us, Lord, to understand salvation is about so much more than that. Help us to pray. Help us to live in such a way that we are conformed to your image and empowered to live like you in the world for your glory so that all may come to recognize that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Regardless of who is in the White House next year, regardless of who sits in the state legislature, Lord, we recognize Jesus Christ is Lord.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This concludes the Gospel of Divine Mercy Conference Talk 5, Grace as Divine Mercy in St. Paul, presented by Dr. Michael Barber, Fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. To learn more about the work of the St. Paul Center and to access this extensive archive of resources on Scripture, the sacraments, sacred liturgies, and much more, visit their website, stpaulcenter.com. Discerning Hearts would like to thank Dr. Scott Hahn and all those associated with the St. Paul Center for the opportunity to bring you this presentation. Discerning Hearts is a nonprofit Catholic media apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation. To hear and or to download freely hundreds of other programs dedicated to spiritual formation, visit discerninghearts.com. We pray this has been helpful for you and that you will tell a friend and visit discerninghearts.com. Discerning Hearts.